Okay, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Welcome everybody to another amazing Saturday session. I'm so excited. I've been waiting for this session since last summer. I was like holding up signs, Surah Maryam, Surah Maryam. <laughs> and I've uh, just been so excited because from what, what little I know, it's a very special surah that is focused on the empowerment of women. Um, and that's all I know, but I know it's going to be amazing. And um, I, I feel badly every time we, we talk about that, I jump up and down and the professor goes, oh God. And because the, the weight of the responsibility and trying to do it justice. But inshallah, you know, this I think um, people um, have been writing to me that they've also really excited about Surah Maryam. So anyway, I'm sorry not to add pressure, but I think inshallah, I'm just very much looking forward to this session. Um, I wanted to just encourage people, if they haven't had a chance to watch the khutbah yesterday, it was particularly powerful also because of the issue of women and the advice that the professor gave at the end about raising your daughters. And, you know, we've been talking a lot about the issue of hijab here. And, um, you know, and I've been getting a lot of messages, positive and negative, um, about the issue. And as, you know, we have actually a little um, excerpt that we cut and put up on YouTube, which has um, my introduction addressing an email that I received about, you know, why I don't wear hijab and how hard it is to listen to someone and, and you know, accept knowledge or, or, you know, accept someone's credibility when they're not wearing a scarf. So I addressed that. And then at the very end of the halakha, at the end of the Q&A session, um, the professor also weighed in on that issue and pointed out that this is an interpretive issue of the text. I mean, some people interpret it one way and others interpret it another. And of course, you know, we are all about education, knowledge, reflection, critical thinking. Um, and what was um, highlighted in yesterday's khutbah at the, at the end was the story of a Muslim woman who was wearing a hijab with her child and um, was in, um, uh, in France and came under attack um, because of that, which was extremely traumatic for her young child. Um, and also how now they are working on, on legislation to prevent um, Muslim women wearing hijab from accompanying their young children, which is incredible. Um, but anyway, you know, so his advice was that, you know, these are battles that need to be fought by women. I mean, these are issues that you know, are more appropriate for women to stand up for, not necessarily, I mean, of course, men should help and support, but I think that the women need to be on the front line of these battles. Um, and so that, that was a really powerful khutbah. And the first part of the khutbah was also um, extremely powerful in the idea that, you know, this is a journey to God, and we focus on the Quran here, we focus on the knowledge and the learning to empower ourselves to develop our relationship with God and that it's not a race, um, but a journey. And a race involves comparing your progress to someone else's and trying to focus on things that are a distraction from focusing on your relationship with God. So um, that was a very um, powerful khutbah, just as a reminder that we have individual journeys that have and we have individual challenges and that really the only one that matters as your audience or as the person that you should be worried about pleasing is God. And in some ways that makes life very simple um, and takes the, the, the noise of comparison with others out of that journey. So, um, and then just lastly, I know um, last time when I was talking about um, the hijab, it was in response to an email. And I got a very beautiful email today also that I thought I would share very briefly. 
um, because I seem to be more efficient at answering my emails in my talks here than actually answering on email. So this I thought I would just share. Um, dear Grace, Salaamu Alaikum. I know how incredibly busy you are. I hope you'll forgive me for taking some of your time reading this email, but I have wanted to thank you and Dr. Halid Abulfadl on many occasions for the fresh, brave, and insightful thoughts that I have received from you. I converted from Christianity to Islam around two years ago at the age of 60 plus and had previously worshipped in the company of women in services frequently led by, by a woman. I still find it difficult to understand why there is such importance assigned to the wearing of a veil. If it is to minimize the likelihood that a man would look inappropriately at a woman not wearing a veil, then surely this must be a matter for self-control on a man's part. I was advised in a new Muslim class that I should wear a beard, as did the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. There seem to be some issues which take on a significance that is not warranted and in some ways influenced by culture. I belong to a new Muslims group and frequently receive quote unquote strictly sisters only invitations sent to the group for events that would appear to be of general value, such as preparing for Ramadan. I obviously accept this segregation. However, being a married man with a daughter and two sons and having spent 60 years in a worshiping community where the mixing of the sexes was the norm, I find the rationale difficult to understand as reading a translation of the Holy Quran, I have never been guided to this need for separation. Thank you again, Grace, and great thanks to Dr. Halid Abulfadl for his Quranic commentary, which is such an enlightenment for me. So, you know, I, it's, it was a beautiful message that, you know, of course, um, you know, every time I hear from a convert, it just, it warms my heart, and I, I know, like, and it also hurts me and pains me because I, I think, oh my gosh, okay, two years in, I know what this person is going through and maybe will go through um, having been through that journey. And so I'm so grateful, especially when they find like the Suli Institute and Dr. Khaled um, for the things we talk about here. Um, I mean, if you imagine yourself, you know, over the age of 60 and spending your life worshiping, you know, um, with men and women and all of a sudden you enter a context where Muslims are telling you you have to wear a beard and you can't interact with women and all of this, you can imagine how that would be. You've spent your entire grown adult life dealing in a very normal, rational way. And then all of a sudden you enter, you know, a religion you choose, I mean, you know, like the thought of converting to a religion religion after the age of 60 is truly mind-blowing if you think about that um, but you know it just pains me and I think it, it really requires a pause like is this really what this religion is about and is it you know and when you are the person telling someone who just converted you need to now wear a beard and you can't interact with women what does that mean about your psychology and I, I just really hope that you know, Muslims will interrogate themselves and think about like, how, how does someone receive this type of information? And what are you telling people about your faith? Um, you know, we try so hard to push people to like think reasonably, beautifully, rationally. And I think a lot, of, you know, we get so many messages from people that just say, we really appreciate what you're saying because I feel like we speak in a very normal way. You know, like oftentimes I've gone into Muslim spaces where all of a sudden there's just a different way of speaking. There's a different language. There's a different even, you know, intonation of things. And, you know, I really, you know, very purposefully try to speak as a normal human being here and try to speak in a compelling way that pushes people to hopefully think about things in a different way. And I, I think that people appreciate that, but I really wish and hope that more Muslims would just interrogate themselves and, and think about like, okay, 
you know, what is, what am I offering, especially for, for a convert? And if you're not sure yourself, then just don't say anything. Just be kind, be nice, be normal, please. And, you know, and to the person who wrote to me, thank you so much. I'm, I'm so happy to know that we can be a source of, you know, of comfort, knowledge, normalcy. Um, you know, for me as a convert, I just want to be part of a really amazing, beautiful religion. I came to this, I do what I do, because I passionately believe that Muslims should be the most impressive, the most kind, the most smart, the most, you know, interesting. I mean, it's like the best of people. And, and that's what I really tried to convey. And, and I hope that that is something that we can help promote so that people don't think Muslims are just backwards and weird all the time. So um, anyway, uh, thank you for listening. And I'm really excited for uh, a woman-powered, a woman-empowering session, inshallah. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen Subhanallah Al-Ali Al-Azim Al-Salatu Al-Salam Ala Muhammad Khatam Al-Nabiyyin Al-Mursal Rahmatan Lil-Alameen Wa Ala Alihi Atkhar Al-Mayameen Wa Ala Ashabihi Wa Man Taba'ahu Bihsan Ila Yawm Al-Din ومشرح لي صبر يسر لي أملي وحرل أخدة للنسان يفقه قولي يا رب العالمين إن شاء الله today we'll deal with سورة مريم and maybe Grace is excited unburdened The, the, the Quran, the carrying the Quran and delivering the Quran is, is um, um, a weighty obligation and no matter what words just always fail you. Um, and as you know in, in so many of the surahs we now talked about, uh, each of these surahs, it's a, it's a, um, it's an intimate, uh, interactive relationship with each surah that lasts for a lifetime, and then to try to put in words um, this very intimate relationship. Uh, is really challenged. Is 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 really challenged. Be before we jump into Surah Maryam, though, I, Grace shields me from a lot of the messages she gets about hijab, and um, and that's a good thing because she she doesn't want to. She knows I have just a, a great deal on my plate and things like that are a distraction. It saddens me that that we are still at a point where, because I, I know fully well, I know fully well that the fact that gave, Grace gives an introductory word um, before each halakha that that immediately limits my audience and i know fully well that there are many people out there 
that would be willing to listen to the halakhas, but for the fact that my wife uh, appears at the beginning not wearing a hijab. Um, and I know that, because I do get some messages like that, uh, why don't you veil your wife and, and the like. Let me be very clear about this. I would never, never tell a woman to veil or tell a woman to unveil. Uh, this is a intricate legal issue and an intricate moral issue. All laws are founded upon an operative cause. And all laws are in a direct interactive relationship with the operative cause that is the heart, at the heart of the law. Now, the operative cause in the case of something like hijab is affected and directly impacted by numerous circumstances in different contexts and in different places and in different times. And among those factors is intentionality. A woman, for instance, who wears a hijab but absolutely hates it, that's a serious problem. What is the value of a hijab if you wear it but you don't understand it and it doesn't add anything to your spirituality or your Islam or your faith? A hijab that could end up packaging a woman from an intellectual being and a spiritual being into simply a sexual symbol. So in conditions and circumstances, social and cultural, where there is such excessive patriarchy that the hijab becomes simply a way of sexualizing women, then the hijab is not performing its function and the operative cause is impacted directly. But at the same time, I have testified in numerous cases as an expert witness in favor of rights of women to wear the hijab or when women have been discriminated against in their jobs because of the hijab, and I will continue doing so because if a woman believes the hijab is an, an obligation from Allah upon her, then the only option left to a man is to support her. To to construct an obstacle to knowledge because of the optics that adorn a woman 
um, is is sad, and it's um, it's exactly why our civilization, our Muslim civilization, is behind. The other point I want to make is that the prophetic society was not a segregated society. One of the points I made on the khutbah is that, and, and I've made this point repeatedly, the seerah needs to be retold. If the seerah is retold from a competent historical perspective, anchored in the methods of historiography, it is abundantly clear that women at the time of the Prophet ﷺ were not segregated, were not excluded, were not secluded, and that they were intimately involved in every aspect of life. I understand there are cultures that segregation is just the way they do things. But to impose these cultural paradigms as if they are anchored in Islamic theology and law in places like the United States is again a failure of humongous proportions. If Allah wills and gives me the, the health and time, one of the things that I would love to do is go through the tedious process of introducing people to the enormity of the role that women played at the time of the Prophet And it was not a docile role and it was not the role of a secluded gender. Um, in fact, some of the roles played by women are even radical by the standards of our day and age today. Okay, got it out of my system, so let's move on. Surah Maryam. It's challenging surah because it is very layered. Fascinating in the fact that it was revealed um, within the late early Meccan period, so towards the end of the early Meccan period. It was revealed after Surah Al-Furqan, after Fatr. Uh, most reports say that it was revealed right after Fatr and before Surah Taha. So in terms of Surah that we discussed, um, you have Yasin, Furqan, Fatr, then Maryam, then Surah Taha, uh, and then Surah Al-Dukhan, which we just also discussed. And then after Al-Dukhan is the Shara. So 
if you studied your surahs well, it would strike you that Surah Maryam in the sequence um, is um, as if introducing a whole different set of themes, particularly themes that relate to biblical prophets and distinguishing Islam from Christianity and Judaism. Surah Yasin, Surah Al-Furqan, Surah Fatir, Surah Taha, Surah Al-Dukhan, and even Surah Al-Shara, which we haven't discussed yet. All of them were driven by an ethical impetus. There is a, a profound ethical momentum in these surahs. And Surah Maryam stands out from the sequence of surah, which um, deserves a pause and deserves some serious thought and some serious understanding. We know that this is the only surah in the Quran named after a woman. I don't read too much into that fact, um, but as we will see, the intervention, the contribution of Surah Maryam uh, makes the, the, the Maryam's womanhood quite central to the message. Now, at the get at the outstart, one of the most remarkable things about Surah Maryam is that of all the surah of the Quran, this is the surah where the name Ar Rahman, Ar Rahman, the Merciful, is repeated most often. So in Surah Maryam, Ar-Rahman is repeated about 11 times, if I remember correctly, which is far more than any other Surah in the Quran. So we have Al-Anbiya, Yaseen, uh, Al-Mulk. Each of these Surah, Ar-Rahman, is mentioned four times. But then you have Surah Maryam, Ar-Rahman, is mentioned 11 times. So there's a, a, an emphasis on understanding Allah as Ar-Rahman and understanding Allah's relationship to us through that qualitative state, Ar-Rahman and Ar-Rahmaniyyah. And this comes full circle, especially at the end of surah, at the end of the surah, when 
when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us what happens if you fully embrace Allah's mercy, if you fully embrace Allah as a Rahman, it is not a coincidence that the word Rahman, of course, is derived from Rahma, mercy, and Rahma itself, in the opinion of most linguists, is derived from the word Rahm, the womb. A minority view says that Rahm is derived from Rahma, but that's not um, likely. The more likely situation is that Rahma was actually derived from Rahm, the womb. And the womb, the, the relationship, I think, is obvious. The womb as a, 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 a locus for motherhood, for mercy, for serenity, for safety. And then Ar-Rahman as all of these things and more. Okay. So Surah Maryam starts again. One of the distinguishing things about this this surah is that it starts with these particular set of letters: Kaf, Ha, Ya, Ayn, Sad. There is a lot in the Islamic tradition about what these particular letters mean. I'm not going to go through uh, the more outlandish arguments because some of them, some of the views out there even say that this Kaf uh, Ha'ayya Ayn Saad is about Imam Ali and, and Hussein and that. I mean, you get some, a lot of interpretations. Um, but some of the, the more popular ones, or some of the more reliable ones as well, is that Kaf Ha Ya Ayn Saad, in them, they, each letter stands for one of the attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that are all central constituent elements of the quality of Rahmah. So Kaf stands for Kafin, the sufficient. Ha stands for Hadi, guidance, the one who guides. Ya stands for Yameen, from the word Mannan, or the giver, the grantor. And Ayn stands for Aziz, the caretaker. Some said Alim, uh, the all-knower. And Saad stands for Sadiq, the truth. Um, others have noted uh, Arabic letters, like Hebrew letters, 
have a numerical value. Each Arabic letter has a numerical value. This is if this is found in Hebrew, this is found in Arabic, and this is found in Aramaic. And if you take the numerical value of ka ha ya ayn sad, so it, the, the number would be exactly equal to the numerical value of la ilaha illallah. That was another thing. So kaf is, the numerical value of kaf is 20, ha is 5, ya is 10, ayn is 70, and sad is 90, and if you add these numbers together, they come out exactly the same as the numerical value found in La ilaha illallah. Um, and of course, ultimately, we come to these letters and we say that some have even suggested that Kaf Ha Ya Ayn Sad is one of the um, one of the names of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. Uh, one of the grand names of Allah that uh, is only known to Allah, but, but that's not very well supported, and so I'm not going to pause at it. But so ultimately, as always with these letters at the beginning of the surah, we we are never sure what they mean precisely, but we have speculation that is often based on reports that sometimes goes back to the tabi'in, to the successors, less frequently to the companions, um, or even generations right after the successors, right after the tabi'in. Okay. Surat Maryam has a series of interventions at the beginning each time calling upon the Prophet to recall either in Udhkur or, or Dhikr and which is to, to hearken back to history, but we need to pay careful attention to precisely what the Prophet is asked to recall because therein is the message of Surah Maryam. So, Dhikru Rahmati Rabbika Abdahu Zakariya is Nada Rabbahu Nida and Khafiya. Kara Rabbi. إِنِّي وَهَنَ الْعَظْمُ مِنِّي وَاشْتَعَلَ الرَّأْسُ شَيْبًا وَلَمْ أَكُنْ بِدُعَاءِ رَبِّكَ شَقِيًّا وَإِنِّي خِفْتُ الْمَوَالِي مِنْ وَرَائِي وَكَانَتْ إِمْرَأَتِي عَاقِرًا فَهَبْ لِي مِنْ لَدُونْكَ وَلِيًّا ذِكْرُ رَحْمَةِ رَبِّكَ Immediately, we are engaged in this duality of remembrance and alerting us to the central theme of Allah's mercy. 
And the grammatical construction here invites us to think of the mercy granted to Zachariah, who we'll talk about in a second, and that Zachariah himself is a mercy. Very eloquent grammatical construction that delivers this duality of meaning in a very succinct and right-to-the-point fashion. ذِكْرُ رَحْمَةِ رَبِّكَ عَبْدَهُ زَكَرِيَّةِ A reminder of the mercy of your Lord. And as I said, with the duality that Zachariah himself is a mercy, and a mercy granted unto Zachariah. And immediately we are put before a picture. Zachariah is an old man, and we know that Zachariah is a prophet, and he is descendant of the of from the from Israel or the Israelite line of prophets. And Zachariah the the study Quran says cried out to his Lord was a secret cry. But that's not really what the Arabic says. Is Nada Rabbahu Nida and Khafiya. This old man is anxious and worried. And the image that you get is that it is as if this man cannot is not even articulating out loud the prayer, the 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 dua towards Allah. Because what he wants is quite unlikely, very, in fact, impossible. What is he worried about? There are, of course, you, you can fi you'll find a lot of reports about, say, different things, but the, the most reliable. Zachariah occupies a very important role within the temple, the Jewish temple, and within the priestly class in the Jewish temple. And Zechariah was among those who is critical of the priestly class of the temple and their morality. As we know from the story of Jesus, what Jesus is, it, one of the primary roles of Jesus is to criticize the corruption of the priestly class in the temple. Zechariah is worried about what will happen to his office and his knowledge after his death. There is no one to inherit him. And he is worried about those that will take his office after him and the way that they will corrupt what he has accomplished. But he's old, and his wife is old, 
and is nada rabbahu nidaan khafiya it's as if he's not even articulating what he wants from his lord he wants an heir but the dua the wish is as if enunciated silently and as we'll see silence is a constant theme in surah maryam and we'll talk about why and what does zakariah supplicate what does zakariah pray to his lord he says that i am become feeble i've become old This is one of the most beautiful expressions in the Quran. Um, um, it is as if whiteness has been, as if whiteness are the rays of a fire. It's as if the the your, the way that. Uh, it, gray gray hair it's as if a fire had ignited and meaning that it's an expression of you know life has passed by and i find myself old and frail and it's like saying where did the years go my hair now is white my my bones are weak and i have a problem ولم أكن بدعائك ربي شقية and Allah I've always had a close relationship with you and I have come to you so many times with my problems and you've always obliged me and helped me remarkable in just few sentences you feel like you know Zakaria you feel like you've been placed in Zachariah's predicament. I am worried in... Wait, wait, wait. Um, the study Quran translates it as, I feel my relatives. And Mawali are not necessarily relatives. And Mawali could be relatives, but could be those who are in a position to take over or inherit me, and in this case, inherit his office in the temple. All the other things that have been suggested as to what he is worried about are not convincing. And I don't have an heir. There is something that we know from Surah Al-Amran, not in Surah Maryam, but SubhanAllah, Al-Amran is not revealed yet. And so we don't know it yet for at least those people who are receiving Surah Maryam. And that is that Zakaria, before 
he is articulating the silent prayer. He has seen a miracle in that he is the guardian of Miriam, her uncle, and when he visits Miriam, he finds that she has food that he had not given her. And when he asks her, where, where did this food come, come from? And she says, it was directly from the Lord. So, Zechariah, we find out later from Surah Al-Amran, is sort of on notice that this is a special moment in history. But when Surah Maryam is revealed, it is as if this is a detail that we don't need to worry about. Allah is simply telling us about this old man who's a prophet, who has an old wife, and weighed down with concern and worry about what will happen to the faith after him. And the solution for an heir is so unlikely at his age that he is, doesn't even dare make that dua outright. Allah answers the secret prayer, as the surah told us, after Zakaria receives the, the, the good news immediately. Ya Zakaria, inna nubashirka bhulamin ismu yahya lam najal lahu min kablu samiya. We, in fact, will give you a child, and this child is named. Yahya directly by Allah and unlike the name Yahya but according again uh, name Yahya this is the first time that it was ever used um, which literally means that who will keep something alive and it's obvious here in this context what Yahya will keep alive Of course, Zechariah is shocked by the news and says, how could this be at my age? And in Surah Maryam, Allah simply responds through Angel Jibreel, Kadalik. Simply, it is. Allah wills it, so it is. Kadalik qala rabbuka قَالَ رَبُّكَ هُوَ عَلَيَّ هَيًّا وَقَدْ خَلَقْتُكَ مِنْ قَبْلُ وَلَمْ تَكُ شَيْئًا It is. It is easy for me. And this will be a consistent theme in Surah Maryam which will tie, tie it at the end. Okay. Couple of things to note.
considering the practices of the Israelites at the time, the normal thing that men did if they wanted an heir would be what? Marry another wife. Did you say marry another one? Yeah. Or get a slave girl. So it is noteworthy that we already know something about Zachariah. This is central to the notion of Rahmah. A, a virtue beyond the law. Although he wanted an heir, he's very worried about his office. He has very good reasons to want an heir because the temple has been corrupted by the priestly class, by the class of priests. And Zechariah was at odds with a lot of the priests of the temple because of his rejection of usury and other practices, including gifts and so on. But he refuses to take another wife. And in a, in a very few sentences, you're introduced to a, a loving relationship between Zachariah and his wife and a loving relation, relationship between Zachariah, the wife, and a child that we know is called Yahya. And that Yahya, in fact, will play the role of a very important reformer. This is, by most reports, is John the Baptist. But what happens to John the Baptist at the end? He's executed, right? He's martyred. So, take a step back. Because this is important for the rest of Surat Maryam. Allah grants the miracle. The miracle is one that will fill the heart of Zachariah and his wife with a great deal of joy. The miracle will also play a very important role in setting the ground for the coming of Jesus, <coughs> as we know in, in hindsight. But from Zachariah's perspective, his dear child will end up being martyred. An invitation to thinking from the very beginning of the surah about the very nature of Rahmah in our relationship with the divine. Zakaria asks Allah for a sign what that means according to most, is that Allah, Zakaria basically says to Gabriel, well, how do I know 
when my wife has become pregnant. And he said, your sign will be is that you will lose your ability to speak for three days. That's the sign that they're talking about. And some reports they say that he was able to, to, if he did tasbih, he would be able to do that. But if he tried to talk to anyone else, it, you know, who knows? These are all speculations. But basically, he loses his ability to speak for three days. And what we know about Yahya, as the Quran tells us, Ya Yahya khudit kitaba biquwwatin wa atainahu al-hukma sabiyya wa hananan min ladunna wa zakatan wa kana taqiyya wa barran bi walidayhi wa lam yakun jabbaran asiyya wa salamun alayhi yawma wulida wa yawma yamutu wa yawma yubasu hayya. Profoundly compassionate description of a child to parents cannot be. This is from 12. John Yahya, take the book with strength. Take the book with strength means hold on to the revelation, it, uh, meaning piety. You know, we, we, in the tradition, there are long discussions about what book, and we don't need to, to posit all of that. And at a very young age, he is given wise judgment that ever rare human quality of reasonableness human beings love to talk about reason what is reasonable but believe me reasonableness is truly at the heart of wisdom and it is truly rare he is given this profound gift good judgment and he is pure and tender and in mercy and remarkably compassionate and loving towards his parents. Never domineering, meaning he was never arrogant, never high and mighty, didn't raise his voice to his parents, didn't yell at them, didn't order them around, and was not rebellious. And then this indirect reference, peace upon Yahya, peace upon him the day that he is born, the day he, is, the day he dies, and the day he is resurrected. Because we know that the day he dies is the day he is executed. And he is not executed in a pleasant way, he is executed in the Roman way. He's crucified. Now, there, we, there are, there's disagreement as to whether Zakaria and his mother were alive when John the Baptist is crucified. But the likely is that they were alive. 
Can you imagine their feelings? Hold on to that thought. Because Surat Maryam, you, you need to put the pieces together as it all comes. <laughs> right after Zakariya, the Quran takes us to another pregnancy and another childhood and another relationship. Now, when Zechariah's mother, which there, there are disagreement to the sources about what Zechariah's mother's name was, but um, the most likely the most likely is that she was her name was Asha bint Faqud bint bin Mil. Um, and she is Miriam's aunt. Her brother is Hannah, and Hannah. Uh, is Miriam's father. But of course, Miriam, Hannah dies early and Miriam is taken care, taken care of by her uncle. Anyway, when Zachariah's, when Zachariah's wife is pregnant with John, Miriam is also going to be pregnant at the same time with Jesus. Zechariah's wife is, an, is old. She is an old woman, while Miriam is very young. So right away, Surat Miriam then takes us to the next scene and the next episode. واذكر في الكتاب مريم إذ انتبذت من أهلها مكانا شرقيا فاتخذت من دونهم حجاب فأرسلنا إليها روحنا فتمثل لها بشرا سويا And again the Quran invites the Prophet and through the Prophet the followers of course of the Prophet to recall, uh, um, which verse am I on? Uh, 16. 16. Uh, 60, okay. And remember Mary, now what do we remember again about Mary? First, she is, we are told that she withdrew from her family to an eastern place. I'm not going to uh, give you a headache with all the discussions about what an eastern place me means. But the, some said, summarizing all of it, is that some said that she basically isolated herself in a part of the temple. 
in order to commit herself and dedicate herself to worshiping Allah in seclusion. Others said that consistent with Jewish law at the time, Jewish law at the time and Jewish law as it still exists uh, in every school other than Reformed Judaism, if a woman is on her menstrual cycle, she is not allowed in the temple and not allowed in a dwelling place. So she's supposed to be in isolation. Of course, that is not necessarily applied, but that's what the, the traditional law was. And that uh, Miriam was secluded because of her menstrual cycle. But Does it make a difference? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why. Yes, it does, but I'll, I'll tell you in a second. So she's in seclusion, and the thing about Miriam is that she is herself um, in a defiant, if you will, radical role. Because according to Jewish law, families of the priestly class, if they wanted to commit their children to serving the Lord, then they commit their oldest male child. So you say, I dedicate my child, who's the oldest male, the first male born, to the service of the Lord. And then that child goes to the temple to train to become a priest, a rabbi. with all that will entail, and so on. But Miriam's mother made that dedication, but she didn't give birth to a boy, she gave birth to a girl. But although she gave birth to a girl, then according to the customs and practices of Judaism at the time, she should have then said, okay, well, then it's not gonna work. But Mariam's mother did something very unusual, and that is say, well, I'm still committing my child to serving the temple. My child who's a girl. That caused an uproar. It's interesting that we started this halakha, was talking about segregation. Because Mariam was breaking the, the, the law of segregation within the temple. And it wouldn't have worked if Miriam herself was not committed to that role or if she was bashful, but rather Miriam insisted that she is going to uphold her mother's oath and that although she cannot be a priest, according to Jewish law, she is still going to serve the temple like a priest.
this is in part the hostility of the priestly class to Miriam and her family. And in part, the reaction of the priestly class to Jesus. And the reason, part, in part, the reason that they want Jesus to be ultimately executed. Because this is a troublemaking family. This is the family that introduced a woman to the temple, insisted that the woman be in the temple, refused to have the woman go away, although the, the priests did everything they could to alienate Miriam and scare her away, but she wouldn't leave. And then, after that, she's going to give birth to a child, and that child is going to go around criticizing us for our lack of morality and our practices and usury and everything. It is a storm brewing. A storm like that of John the Baptist. Because John the Baptist, as well, he's not executed because the priestly class likes him. He's executed because he insists on upholding the moral code of Zechariah and fighting the financial corruption of the priestly class in the temple. And as a result, the priestly class help the Romans capture John the Baptist and put him to death. But this woman, and I want you now to focus on this woman whose this surah is named after. She's a very young woman. Some reports say that she was 10 years old. Some reports say that she was 13. And a few reports say that she was 16. Later Christians, Christians that came centuries later, raised her age to 20. But that's clearly an addition that was introduced after Islam. So it's very, very late. But the reports are it's either that she's 10, 13, or 16. And most reports say 10 or 13. 16 is even a minority view. So, like John the Baptist, she's also exceptional. She's, by our standards today, a child. But, remarkably ethical, remarkably committed, and refuses to go away when the priestly class tells her to go away and gives a headache because Zakaria is his, her guardian, um, that, will, that, that will add to the hostility of the priestly class to Zakaria and ultimately their, the, the vengeance they take against John the Baptist. Okay. But at this point, so she is secluded in, an, in what we just referred to as an easterly wing, and you already get the picture of all the reasons that seclusion would be a very good idea, whether it's her choice or it's forced upon her. And 
واتخذت من واتخذت من دونهم حجابا she ha, she has constructed hijab here is uh, like a partition she partitioned herself off was it did she partition herself as some source to say because she's in her menstrual period or basically because she doesn't want the priestly the priests of the temple to keep harassing her because they kept trying to kick her out and she refused to leave so she is in seclusion she's alone but she's an exceptional woman فأرسلنا إليها روحنا فتمثل لها بشرا سويا قالت إني أعوذ بالرحمن منك إن كنت تقيا قال إنما أنا رسول ربك لأهب لك غلاما زكيا قالت أن يكون لي غلام ولم يمسسني بشر ولم أكو بغيا قال كذلك قال ربك هو علي هين ونجعله آية للناس ورحمة منا وكان أمرا مقضيا What appears before Maryam is a very good looking being because of patriarchy in the sources you'll find some not very, uh, some ridiculous things about why he's such a good-looking man. Um, some, you know, the, the, it's, a, it's Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, but he manifests as a very good-looking man. Um, you know, some sources, uh, he was a very good-looking man so that she, her egg will be released. Yeah. Uh, although, I mean, it's quite clear that she's not that she's scared of the of the guy and she when she sees the man she's not at all aroused she says may Allah protect me uh, means that this is number 18 I seek ref refuge from the compassionate if you are reverent, the reason she says, if you are reverent, means that if you fear God, then you will stay away from me. Normally, you say, I seek refuge from God, I seek refuge in God because you are evil. But she doesn't know that this person that manifested, and she suspects that this is very strange. She doesn't look like the priestly class, the people in the temple. Obviously, she knows he's not a visitor to the temple. So it's like saying, if you fear God, stay away from me. I mean, oddly enough, for some reason, you find long discussions in the sources about why she says in kunta taqiyya, which, you know, there's no reason for it. And the poor woman then receives the news that she has been chosen to become pregnant.
you know, put yourself in Maryam's shoes. All you do is worship and fight off old men who are not very nice. You can probably imagine how much they sexually harassed Maryam. And suddenly you're being told you're going to get pregnant. Sure, it's, it's a miraculous thing and she will feel honored, but she will also feel terrified and scared because she knows what this means in terms of the way that this society is going to treat her. But again, that reference that Allah says, like what Allah says about the Prophet Muhammad that this child that we are going to give you is going to be rahmah linnas, is going to be a mercy unto human beings. And of course she, she, she asked the typical, you know, how could I get pregnant? A 10-year-old or a 13-year-old who, according to some reports, she's ministrated in her life either two times or three times before this happens. Um, and again, she gets the same response of kathalik. It is what Allah wants it to be. So what happens next with Maryam? She knows she can't be around the temple as her stomach grows. And in fact, she knows that she is in a very difficult position. She does the only thing that she could really do, she leaves the temple and goes to a place where she is alone to carry the pregnancy to term. In the tradition, you find some strange reports that uh, she had a fiance and she goes with her fiancé to Egypt to bring the child to term, but there's not much uh, reliance, I mean, not much credibility to these reports. Um, she doesn't go to Egypt till after, if she goes to Egypt, she doesn't go to Egypt till after, well, after Jesus is born, uh, but not during her pregnancy. But she goes in a place alone this is this is uh, we are at um, twenty three and Imagine Maryam's life 
as young as she is, being pregnant from a child without a man, in isolation, when she goes into labor, there's no one to help her, no one with her, and as the pain of labor sets in, she is grabbing onto a palm tree, and she makes the famous prayer, which is an ultimate expression of pain. I wish I never was. I wish I died before this day. I wish I never was. So she's human. We're not talking about a something that can be simply waved away as uh, beyond human ability. She is the bearer of a miracle, but she is thoroughly human. And when she goes into this hardship, she reacts in a very human way. She thinks of the embarrassment, she thinks of the shame, she thinks of the pain, and at that point, she gets support from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the form of stream and fruit from the palm tree. So, Uh, we're to, uh, this is uh, 25. فناداها من تحتها ألا تحزني قد جعل ربك تحتك سرية. She sent. فناداها من تحتها. This how did how did they translate this? Um, This is 24, so uh, oh, they just say, so he called out from her, from below her. There, there's, in, again, in the tradition, long discussions as to what called out from below her means. The most reliable opinion, although you find some very outlandish claims, about this point is that simply she received a message from Gabriel. A comforting message. But what is that comforting message precisely? We don't know. And what is made available to her is water, a stream of water, and she is told to shake the trunk of the date palm tree 
Now, Muslim theologians paused at this because, as I keep saying, that they took the Quran form far more seriously than we did. And they thought, well, Maryam, before in the mihrab, in, as she was in her prayer area, Allah presented her with food without any effort. When Zakaria would come by and say, where is this food from? And she said, well, this is from Allah. But here, lonely, exhausted, in pain, going into labor, although she's provided with a stream, she's told to shake the trunk of the palm tree. Why would Allah say shake the trunk of a palm tree instead of just making the food appear? And interestingly, Muslim theologians said that there is a principle here that relates to the entire dynamic of rahmah with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The balance between acts of grace that are given to you as a gift and the effort that you must put in to receive the remaining of Allah's mercy. So in other words, she was still required to make a certain amount of effort, even in this moment of great trial and crisis. And that is actually to go through the effort of shaking the trunk of the in the tradition, they say that the that the trunk of this date palm tree was was dead, that the, this tree had not borne fruit, um, and that part of the miracle is that tree suddenly came back to life. These are reports. Who knows? Um, others say that it was winter time, and uh, palm trees do not grow dates in winter time so it again was a miracle that Allah presented her with dates at, at that time but all, all of that I don't think is is I mean the, the the important point is the divine intervention After the child is born, there is the problem now of going back to her family. And not just going back to her family, but going back and trying to occupy the same place she occupied in the temple. Remember that her mother had dedicated her to serving the temple. One of the most interesting things about the story of Maryam is that she never is, she, they actually forcibly prevent her from re-entering the temple after the child is born. And that is one of the reasons that Jesus doesn't grow in the temple. He grows outside of the temple. 
So, although they are going to be exposed to a miracle of a child speaking, a baby speaking, they're still going to insist on not believing in Miriam. So anyway, there's the problem now of what what is Miriam to do in terms of going back and confronting her people. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then says through Gabriel, of course, فَإِمَّا تَرِينَ مِنَ الْبَشَرِ أَحَدًا فَقُولِي إِنِّي نَظَرْتُ لِلرَّحْمَنِ صَوْمًا فَلَنْ أُكَلِّمَ الْيَوْمَ إِنْسِيًّا Don't argue with them. Don't try to convince them. Say in, in Jewish law, which again this is classical Jewish law, when you fasted, you fasted from food and you also fasted from talking. Jewish law, then it's changed later. So she is told, don't argue with them, but simply say, I am fasting. We have a form of that when we are taught in Islam that when someone angers you or cusses you out and instead of responding to them you're supposed to say Allahumma inni sa'im I am fasting because you're not supposed to engage in them but it is fascinating and, and we're going to come back and tie all of this that Maryam is told don't try to convince them and don't try to argue Maintain your silence. She has a very intimate relationship with the divine. She has a very difficult situation. But like Zachariah, she is not outspoken. The theme around Zachariah, if you notice, is that he's a quiet man. And with Maryam again, that theme of silence comes back to us and we'll see why. So, of course, when she goes back to now her people and she's carrying her child with her, their reaction this is 27. Oh, the, the study Quran says, oh, they said, oh, Miriam, though has brought an amazing thing. Uh, no. We'll say, when, Fariya is not an amazing thing. Um, Fariya is a despicable thing. You, you've done something despicable. 
uh, it's the same root for the word iftira, which is something wrong. Um, They, they call her sister of Harun, Islamophobes say, oh, and the Quran gets it wrong because the Quran thinks that Maryam was Harun's sister. Harun is, um, is Aaron, uh, uh, Moses' brother. Well, that's not what the Quran is saying. The, the, the reference, and in fact, the, the irony is that there's a hadith um, where the Prophet is asked, about Ya Ukhta Harun, and he says that those people, it's like when you say to someone, Ya bin al Arab, or Ya bint al Arab, oh, you, daughter of Arabs, or oh, son of Arabs. Ya Ukhta Harun means, oh, you who is descended from Harun, from Aaron. And Maryam was descended from Aaron. Doesn't mean that she's. Aaron's sister, obviously, but you know, I've I've read it in one of the Islamophobic books that are so popular these days. This is what twenty-seven. Um, your father was not an evil man, and your mother. Bagia is a prostitute, and your mother was not a prostitute. Meaning, what's wrong with you? You, you should, you were raised better than this. So obviously, the accusation is clear. They're saying that you become pregnant out of wedlock. You know, after we we thought that you're, you've always carried yourself as a very pious woman in the temple, and now you disappeared and come back with a child, and you've obviously sinned and done something horrible. فأشارت إليه قالوا كيف نكلم من كان في المهدي صبية So she points to her child and they're presented with the miracle of a speaking child. This is uh, 30. And how shall we speak to one who is yet a child in a cradle? And the child speaks and says, I am a servant of God who has given me book, and made me a prophet. And And Allah has enjoined upon me prayer and zakat and almsgiving and has made me dutiful towards my mother and has not made me domineering and rich or wretched and peace be upon me the day I am born, the day I die, and the day I am raised. Immediately you notice that this is exactly the same description about the other child born, John the Baptist, 
who ends up crucified, and Jesus describes himself in the same compassionate terms. Someone who is merciful, compassionate towards their parents, single parent, the mother, and someone who is, we are told, is given to us as a mercy, someone who's not domineering, someone who's not controlling. وأوصاني بالصلاة بالصلاة والزكاة وما دمت حيا وبرا بوالدتي ولم يجعلني جبارا شقيا and has not made me domineering or controlling or unjust now this Quranic discourse on Maryam is something that is unique to the Quran, these details about Maryam. The details of her, this, this sort of intimate pictures of her emotions as she bears a child as she returns, we know then later on from Surah Ali Umran that her uh, sorry, yeah, we know from Surah Ali Umran that she is will play this critical role in the mission that Jesus has. There is a debate in the Islamic tradition as to whether Maryam was a prophet or not. There, this is the part that I wanted her to hear because I, I know she's... Um, a minority view says that Maryam was a prophet because she received revelation she, from Gabriel and that uh, citing various pieces of evidence it, it say that she was among the women prophets in Islam. It is not well known among modern Muslims that there is a school of thought that says that there were several female prophets in the, in Islam. The other view says that she wasn't a prophet, but that she was a Siddiqa. A Siddiqa is someone who can receive miracles, but they're not in fact a messenger of a, or a prophet. But remember that this intimate introduction to the persona of Maryam, who the Surah is named after, is one in which a woman embodies an enormous amount of strength. 
and a strength where she embraces a position completely against and opposite to the social mores of her time. She is not consistent with Jewish law at the time. According to Jewish law, you, women can't be a servant in the temple. According to Jewish law, a woman can't be the recipient of a prophetic message or a miracle. And according to Jewish law, if a child if a woman comes and says, my child speaks, then there's one conclusion. If you take the traditional old Jewish law, that this child is demonically possessed because she has no husband, she has no lineage, male lineage, from either the house of Judah or the house of Israel. So how can it possible possibly be that her child, born out of wedlock, literally, would be a recipient of a divine miracle? We often too quickly jump over Miriam and go directly to Jesus. But the, the Surat Miriam forces us to pause at Miriam. Not only then, because after the, the, the child speaks, It is not that she is believed and forgiven. She is prohibited from entering the temple, from going back to the temple. And Zachariah and his family are able to, to simply shield her. But she remains an outcast in society. And this will eventually culminate in a perfect storm where both John the Baptist and Jesus will be the target for, the, for elimination. But Maryam is no pushover. She doesn't disappear from society as Jesus is growing. Jesus speaks as a child and then, I mean, then after that he's silent. And all the stages of his growth are like all other children until he's 30 years old when he when he's called to his prophecy. But from the time he's born until he's 30 years old, he's a regular human being. He eats, goes to the bathroom, goes to work. Not He's extremely poor. According to most reports, him and his mother don't even 
have a stable home. They never manage to buy a home, so they move around a lot. Um, they, from whatever, Miriam reportedly weaves, Jesus does a little carpentry, and Zachariah helps out, the family of Zachariah help, helps out, so they're extremely poor, but Miriam is not apologetic about her role and the miracle of how she conceived Jesus. And, in fact, according to some reports, that the social pressure against her gets so bad that she takes Jesus and goes to Egypt when he's a child to get away from, and then returns back later. So that for a number of years, I think six years or seven years, but it's not clear whether, in fact, she ever went to Egypt. But these are this comes from the Bible, obviously. Um, the, the Muslims who accepted these reports. Now, why does the Quran give us that prototype of this kind of woman at that point in the Meccan message? Think about that as we pray us. We'll, we'll break for us and come back shortly. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. This early in the Islamic message, It's important for you to know that the story of Maryam in the Bible is nothing like this. The, the Maryam in the Bible is a very marginal figure. So, and as we know that Muslims don't really come into contact with Christians in a major way until the Medina period or with Jews until the Medina period. In the Mecca period, the number of Christians in Mecca are very few. But this Quranic narrative about Zachariah and Maryam clearly, at one level, distinguishes the Qur'an from the biblical narrative and what the Bible says about Maryam. But there is the more important question of why is the story of Maryam presented at this point, at this level of detail, and it wasn't, uh, it wasn't overlooked by the those who received the Quran at the time that Maryam in 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 a in a in a word was an woman going against the current. 
and also at the same time that she bore an overwhelming responsibility. I mean, if you try to put yourself in Maryam's shoes, man or woman, it's startling. How can you be, from the very beginning, you are fighting in a society that is thoroughly patriarchal. It's a, it's a male society in every sense. The temple is all men and yet you are the only woman there and then to add to your problems you are pregnant out of wedlock and then you go away and you appear with your baby and back then there's very heavy belief in the occult and magic, black magic and now you are consistently accused of being a wretched woman who bore a child out of wedlock and your child will grow up to be not a silent member of society, but an outspoken critic of the institutions of power in society. And you are this child's mother. In order to understand why that prototype The answer is without that prototype in the Quran, I doubt very much, I doubt very much that there would have been um, a woman like Umm al Fadl Imra'at al Abbas the first woman to convert after Khadija. Khadija was the first woman. And then Imra, uh, uh, then Umm al-Fadl was the second woman after Khadija to convert. Without that prototype, I doubt very much that you would have a persona like Umm Amara, who is present in the Bayat al-Aqaba, in the vote, in the Pledge of Allegiance in Aqaba, and gives her pledge to the Prophet directly, and insists on joining every single battle after that. And in the Battle of Uhud, she was one of the women who defended the life of the Prophet with her sword, she actually went, she actually fought. And she continued to join the Muslim battles even after the death of the Prophet until her son Khabab was martyred in the Battle of Yamama against Musaylam al-Kazab. And she, her, she lost her hand, her hand was severed in battle. And so she, she lost her hand in battle when she was quite advanced in age. Without the prototype of Maryam, I doubt very much that there would have been a woman like Umm Karthum bint Uqba, who converted her family, was opposed, were opposed to her conversion, 
So she ran away from her family and traveled from Mecca to Medina to join the Prophet on foot, alone in the desert. And her brother actually intercepted her in the desert and tried to forcibly return her to Mecca, but she made such a big stink that they finally said, okay, fine, go. And without that prototype, I doubt very much that there would have been a woman like Qila uh, bint Makhrama. Qila bint Makhrama again converted. She was a mother. She had daughters. And her family told her, well, if you insist on being a Muslim, then we're going to take away your children. They did take away her children, and she traveled alone, in again, from Mecca to Medina. She was only reunited with her children years later, after Mecca was, was defeated. What I'm, what I'm saying is that if you look at the micro-history of Muslim women, not from the lens of patriarchal historians, but you actually look at the micro-history of Muslim women in the Sira, you'll find a remarkable narrative. Whatever the message that these women received empowered them and empowered them to often play a rebellious role in society. So, I mean, when you have someone like Umm Ma'bad al-Khuza'iyah, who insisted that when the Prophet arrived in Medina, that she hosts him in her home. How many stories in the Sira do you have where a woman invites the Prophet to dinner or to food and he comes to her home to eat. How many stories where a woman goes to the Prophet to involve him directly in a dispute with her husband? How many stories of women that, like the examples I gave, who break away from their entire tradition, their entire family. Now here is the, the, the thing that I notice in the seerah, that Surat Maryam and the prototype of Maryam is invoked by Khadija herself. She is invoked by Umm al-Fadl, Imra'at al-Abbas, the, the first woman to convert after Khadija later on. She is invoked by Umm Abd al-Khaza'iyah, the woman who hosted the Prophet. She is invoked repeatedly by women after women in, 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 in the, gaining the inspiration of strength to play a role that often put them in, in, a, in against the current of the in their, of their own society. 
I don't think that that was a coincidence. When I said in the khutbah that without women, Islam would never have gotten off the, the ground. The, the active, dynamic role played by women at the time of the Prophet was critical for even the ability of the society to engage as in many military campaigns as they did without the economy and society crumbling. Because what happens in wars, what happens in wars is society's fault. Ethical values erode. Family units break up. You need a very powerful role played by those who stay behind in order for societies not to fold during intensive military conflicts. The role that women played at the time of the Prophet needs serious, serious reconsideration. It needs to be retold. I believe good historians, historians trained in historical methodology with a Muslim sensitivity and particularly women historians can do the job. But as long as our history is packaged to us by men with a clear agenda and Orientalists with a clear agenda, there's no hope. Then we, we miss completely the impact of, surat, of, of the story of Maryam in Surat Maryam and why she is positioned the way she is positioned in Islam. Other things to, to, to keep in mind. Some jurists, well actually many jurists in, in Islamic history said that pregnancy If a woman is pregnant and she does, but you don't have four witnesses that actually see the act of zina, or you don't have a confession, but simple pregnancy is not enough to implement the hadood punishment. Now, this is not because as Orientalists and of the Larry Rosen elk and so on. It's not because Muslims have no uh, I, no notion of reality, or their idea of reality is consistently negotiated because they have no firm grasp of fact and fiction. Muslim jurists, as often lawyers do, relied on a precedent, and they said that. There was a debate in Jewish law whether Maryam should be stoned. 
and ultimately she was not stoned. Mostly in, in, in politically because Zacharias protected her. But from a legal perspective, that, that's a shubha. And a shubha tadra al-hulud. And so even the, the, the precedent of Maryam ended up playing out in the way Muslims thought about hudud laws. Obviously, the story of Maryam is not an invitation to promiscuity. That, that's not the, the, the point at all. But the story of Maryam as told is layered in even when you can act upon judgment and when you can condemn people. As, as we will see in the rest of the Surah Shalom. So let's move on. Because I'm going to come back and, and wrap it and wrap all of this in Shalom. ذلك عيسى ابن مريم قول الحق الذي فيه يمطرون and we have the interjection that distinguishes Islam from most Christian orientations of course that this is now a verse uh, yes okay so the, 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 this is the Jesus son of Miriam, uh, the state, uh, uh, and this basically that this is the truth about Jesus, the son of Miriam, that they they argue about, or that they make claims about, that it is not befitting for God to take a child. One of the important theological points that Surat Maryam makes and that will become important in, in the development of Islamic theology is that Allah doesn't need to take a child because Allah doesn't need mercy. Allah is the giver of mercy. And children themselves and the process of bearing children and raising children is anchored in the need for mercy. So, okay. The reference فَاخْتَلَفَ الْأَحْزَابُ مِنْ بَيْنِهِمْ فَيْلُ الَّذِينَ كَفْرُوا مِنْ مَشْهَدِ يَوْمٍ عَظِيمٍ This is um, 37. The reference about the parties differing amongst themselves this is a reference to the debates in Christianity about whether you have um, three um, aqanim, um, what are the aqanim? Um, hypostases. Uh, hy hypostases is what called, right? The yeah, the three hypostases or whether this is the son of God or whether this is and whether the son of God is eternal or co-eternal or whether the son of God was created by God and so the the reference to the the parties within Christianity and their debates 
Um, أسمع بهم وابصر يوم يأتوننا لكن الظالمين لكن الظالمون اليوم في ضلال ممير This expression أسمع به وابصر is is wonderfully beautiful. Um, it translates to um, How yeah the study Quran translates that how well they will hear and how well they will see that they the day they come to uh, unto us. Of course, the translation completely loses it because Asma Bihuapsar is just an amazing, succinctly beautiful, amazing way of saying, you know, listen and look. This is so absurd. Uh, yeah, how could God have a son? Look at this. Listen to this. Um, just the, the 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 remarkable language of the Quran and um, okay. Then we get to the next wazkur. So we had wazkur Zakaria, wazkur Maryam. And now we have وَذْكُرْ فِي الْكِتَابِ إِبْرَاهِيمِ إِنَّهُ كَانَ صَدِّيقًا نَبِيًّا So, same thing. We are invited to remember Ibrahim. And Ibrahim in his intimate interaction with his father. And an interaction that is quite remarkable. Here, now we've, we've had a child the John the Baptist, who is, who, from the perspective of the parent, and a child who honors and is respectful and honorable and towards their parents, and from the perspective of the mother, a child, Jesus, who is also respectful and honorable towards the parents, but now we are looking at things from the perspective of the child towards the parent. So, what is going on with this child? In this case, it's Ibrahim. إِنِّي قَدْ جَاءَنِي مِنَ الْعِلْمِ مَا لَمْ يَأْتِكَ فَاتَّبِعْنِي أَهْدِكَ صِرَاطًا سَوِيًّا يَا أَبَتِي لَا تَعْبُدُ الشَّيْطَانِ إِنَّ الشَّيْطَانَ كَانَ لِلرَّحْمَنِ عَصِيًّا يَا أَبَتِي إِنِّي أَخَافُ إِنِّي أَخَافُ أَنْ يَمَسَّكَ عَذَابٌ مِنَ الرَّحْمَنِ فَتَكُونَ لِلشَّيْطَانِ وَلِيًّا This constant repetition يَا أَبَتِي It's immediately, this is saying, oh, my father. But Ya Abati is not just my father. It is an expression of concern, worry, and love. Just hearing this, Ya Abati, Ya Abati, Ya Abati, you immediately sense, you understand the 
love Ibrahim had towards his father. Now mercy, but from a different perspective. And how tormented Ibrahim is with worry about the fate of his father. And Ibrahim is worried that the path that his father is taking, intentionally or not, is effectively causing his father to drift into the party of shaitan. That, and shaitan, as the Quran told us, is an enemy of humankind. And that unless you are deliberately with the Lord, unless you are deliberately with the Lord, in, in simply insisting on being on cruise control, in other words, following the customs and traditions that you've inherited, or your material interests and benefits will cause you to drift where you will end up being in the party of shaitan. Now, notice here, what does Ibrahim tell his father? Ja'ani min al-ilm. I have knowledge. Manam yatik. I have not here. I have. It's like saying I have insight. I see things long term. I can see you drifting towards the party of shaitan because you're not living your life deliberately and consciously in pursuit of the path of of your Lord. Is Ibrahim ultimately successful? What he gets is something rather harsh. Ibrahim's father says, if you don't stop, now literally means I will stone you. But Rajm could mean I will stone you literally, where it's stoning in, in old Near Eastern culture, in old Near Eastern culture, the way you expressed ostracizing someone is that you threw a rock at them. This is why, you, you know, in, in Hajj, we stone the, the, uh, the, the pillars where shaitan is supposed to have appeared, right? Why we're saying we are disavowing shaitan. We are repeating an old, old Near Eastern culture, custom. It wasn't, you didn't throw a stone at someone to injure them necessarily. If you picked pebbles and you threw them at someone, it meant, I don't want to know you, get out of my face, don't come around here anymore. Um, I was once watching television and uh, I don't remember her name but she took off her shoes and she threw it at someone and she said that when you like someone's performance this was someone singing oh. uh, the show called The Voice yeah 
and if you throw your shoes at them, it means that you really love their music. Well, it's sort of the same thing, but here, it, 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 you throw stone, but it's not that you like their music, you actually hate them. Uh, and in Arab culture, if you take off your shoes and throw at someone, it means that you hate their guts and you don't want to know them anymore. So, it's basically the father, whether he meant that he's actually going to stone him to death, or he meant that I would, but it's his father cutting off Ibrahim and saying, I don't want to hear anything from you anymore, get out of my face. And Ibrahim, in fact, is broken hearted. And what does he say? قال سلام عليك سأستغفر لك سأستغفر لك ربي سلام. We've encountered this before in the Quran, when Allah tells us that if the ignorant speak to you, say salam. When Allah tells us that those who tread lightly upon the earth and their attitude towards aggressors or transgressors is to simply turn away salam. So he says, Salamun alaik. He answers in kindness and says, I, I will ask Allah to forgive you. Now, the translates it, this is 48. Um, yeah. Um, so it says, and I will withdraw myself. Yeah, I will withdraw myself. Well, he, it's not just he withdrew himself, he picked up his family and he traveled to Egypt and in fact started this entire journey uh, that became sort of a defining moment for Ibrahim's prophecy. But he did so broken hearted because he was forced to leave his family. And as we know, his father never converted. Okay. And This act, now here the act of mercy, the Rahmah, is Ibrahim's concern for his father. Ibrahim's attempt to guide his father. Ibrahim's response to his father's animosity is to say salamun alayk and to turn away and to distance himself. And in exile, then Ibrahim has Ishaq, and in Ghazas, Ishaq wa Yaqub, Ishaq and Jacob. Ishaq is the son of Rahim, and Jacob is the son of Ishaq. So it's the son and the grandson. This is 49. And when it says, we bestowed upon him Isaac and Jacob, and each we made a prophet. So you have Isaac, the son, and Jacob, the son of the son. وَوَهَبْنَا لَهُ مِنْ رَحْمَتِنَا وَجَعَلْنَا لَهُمْ لِسَانَ صُدْقٍ عَلِيَّ 
we bestowed upon them from our mercy. And the study Quran says, and ordained for them a sublime, faithful renown. Lisana Sutkun Aliyah, a reputation for being truthful and honest. Um, again, compare the way the Quran portrays Jacob to the way the Bible portrays Jacob. It's, as I've said before, the author of the Quran was, had a completely different perspective on the prophets than the author of the Bible as we have it today. Okay, anyway. After we've had this short, where is the Rahmah here between Ibrahim and his father and two faithful sons, Ishaq who's faithful and Jacob who's faithful to his father and his grandfather. And then immediately the Quran goes, Waskur fi kitab, this time Musa. This is now 51. The act of mercy. I, this is 53. Where the act of mercy is that we've bestowed upon Moses, Harun, his brother Aaron, as a prophet. Who, if you remember, Moses tells Allah, I am not as eloquent. Help me by giving me a companion, uh, giving me my brother as a companion. And Allah, Allah obliges. So again, family, but this time not a son, not a father, but a brother. وَاذْكُرْ فِي الْكِتَابِ إِسْمَاعِيلِ إِنَّهُ كَانَ صَادِقَ الْوَعْدِ وَكَانَ رَسُولًا نَبِيًّا وَكَانَ يَأْمُرُ أَهْلَهُ بِالصَّلَاةِ وَالزَّكَاءِ وَكَانَ عِنْدَ رَبِّهِ مَرْضِيًّا And a quick reminder to Ismail and the reference to Ismail this is 54 now The study Quran says that he bid his people to pray and to give zakah. Allah could be his family and could be his people. It could be either. But in the context, in the context, the act of mercy is teaching them their faith. But we, we don't have much elaboration. And then it quickly moves to Idris. وَذْكُرْ فِي الْكِتَابِ إِدْرِيسِ إِنَّهُ كَانَ صُدِّيقَ النَّبِيَّ رَفَعْنَاهُ مَكَانًا عَلِيَّ Idris, who is... Um, um, what is... 
what oh he just um it reads of course is is so reported to have been the first prophet uh, after Adam. So Idris is supposed to be one of the very early prophets, and there are a lot of reports about Idris that he's the first to write, the first to sew clothes, and I mean, a lot of these reports are... I mean, I, I don't know, um, not very reliable, but we don't know much about Idris, except that he's identified as one of the, as the earliest prophet before Noah. إذا تطلع عليهم آيات الرحمن آيات الرحمن خر سجدا وبكيا. This is fifty four. Fifty eight. Oh yeah. The the progeny of Adam, those we carried with Noah, the progeny of Abraham, Ibrahim, and Israel. And when تُطْلَ عَلَيْهِمْ آيَاتُ الرَّحْمَنِ خَرُّوا سُجَّدًا وَبِكِيًّا This, there is hadith that the, there's a lot of hadith where the Prophet ﷺ emphasizes that the type of relationship founded on Rahmah with the Lord, its fruition is when you are not just prostrating out of obedience, but you actually well up with tears out of true, genuine feelings. Just keep this in mind because we'll come back to it. There is a lot more written about this, but we doesn't need to detain us. Okay. So, then this فَخَلَفَ مِنْ بَعْدِهِمْ خَلَفٌ أضاعوا الصلاة واتبعوا الشهوات فسوف يلقون غية. They were followed by a generation that followed their whims and neglected prayers, and their fate is not good. Quranic interpreters disagreed. Some said that this is a reference to later generations of Banu Israel, of the Israelites. And some said that this is a reference to later generations of Muslims who will eventually, in due time, uh, follow their whims and become neglectful with prayers. 
And so the Rahmah that Allah talks about threaded through Surah Maryam will be withdrawn from them. Then we have a brief interlude A reference to Jannah, note that in Surah Maryam, there is no, um, th there are no specific or detailed references to hellfire, which a point will come back. And then we have verse 64, وَمَا نَتَنَزَّلُ إِلَّا بِأَمْرِ رَبِّكَ لَهُ مَا بَيْنَ أَيْدِينَا وَمَا خَلْفَنَا وَمَا بَيْنَ ذَلِكَ وَمَا كَانَ رَبُّكَ نَسِيَّةِ This is 64. The reason I'm flagging 64 is that there are reports that um, the Prophet ﷺ did not receive revelation for about 40 days. And that uh, the Qurayshis started the Meccans started um, try, uh, 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 criticizing him or saying that, look, you know, you, you don't get revelation anymore. You, you, you're, you, your inspiration has dried up. And then after 40 days, Gabriel comes back to the Prophet and the Prophet says, you know, I've, I've missed you. Why don't you come more often? And Gabriel says, well, I, I only come when God tells me that I can come. Um, and they, they, the reports say that this was the occasion for the revelation of verse 64. Um, I doubt that this reported occasion for revelation is authentic, uh, although it's widely reported, but there are many problems with it in transmission, in Isnad. Um, I, I doubt that that's what, that that's what the transmission, that it's, it was an accurate occasion. Anyway. رَبُّ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضُ وَمَا بَيْنَهُمَا فَعَبُدْهُ وَاسْطَبِرْ لِعِبَادَتِهِ هَلْ تَعْلَمُ لَهُ سَمِيَّةِ this is 65. The Lord of the heavens and the earth and whoever is between them, so worship the Lord. Keep that in mind. Persevere in worshiping the Lord. It's like saying, do you know an equal? It's a rhetorical question. Do you know an equal to this Lord? Um, the, the literal translation says, who can be named alongside him? But it's idiomatic. It's, it's like, there's no equal to the Lord. Next thing I'm going to flag is as the Quran tells us, that those who follow shaitan will be brought to jahannam brought to hellfire the jathiyya jathiyya means 
underneath, and we've encountered this image before, the, the humiliation and state of degradation that those who do not attain salvation will be at, ثم لننزعن من كل شيعة أيوم أشد على الرحمن عتية ثم لنحن أعلم بالذين هم أولى بها صلية This is 69 and 70 69 and 70 basically the meaning is that the leaders among the parties of the devil are, Allah knows who are the, the leaders of the pack, sort of those who led people astray, the most arrogant, the most powerful. And these especially will be targets for punishment. In, in, in the sources, in a lot of the tafsirs and theological works, there are discussions about possibilities of forgiveness for followers opposed, as opposed to leaders. Um, but remember that one, we've already talked about this, that one of the biggest sins is to take God for granted and to assume that simply because you see yourself as a follower, that you will be forgiven. Uh, it's one of the, the stupidest things that human beings do. So, I mean, I'm not going to pause. Uh, okay. وَإِن مِنْكُمْ إِلَّا وَارِدُهَا كَانَ عَلَى رَبِّكَ حَتْمًا مَقْضِيًّا This 71 has caused numerous debates in the Islamic tradition. Um, and there is not one of you, but they will... It's not approach it. It could be read as there is not one of you except that they will go to hell. And when I was growing up, I was... I can't tell you the number of times I attended classes where I was told everyone will go to hell and then God's mercy, out of God's mercy, some of us will. And I, the other image that you're also told is that waridwa means that you walk on a, on a, there's a, like a bridge over hell and you walk on that bridge and then either you pass the bridge and you don't go to hell, or you fall into hell, and um, both are wrong. Um, you're not going to walk on a bridge and fall. Um, and although there is a hadith like that, but it's it, there's many problems with it. And not everyone is going to go to hell, but. Waridwa means, and I like the, the, the translation approach it, everyone will be exposed to it. Everyone will confront the possibility. In other words, everyone will get will see it and will be exposed to it. 
because everyone will have a bill to settle. None of us are going to be... Now, it doesn't mean that you'll actually enter Hellfire because it might be that your bill is forgivable. Um, or you, you know, on balance, you've done far more good than, than bad. And so a lot... But the, the... I don't know why there's some theologians, especially in the modern age, who just love to scare Muslims that they're, you know, they're all going to hell and and of course, you know, especially when they're talking to women. Um, <laughs> and then Allah reminds us, I am at, at 75. Um, so, the, the thing to flag here is, again, Allah reminds us to reflect upon how many nations have passed. And the, the expression here, هم أحسن أثاثا ورئية is very interesting. Uh, this is 74. Um, the study Qur'ans uh, translates it who were fairer in their furnishing and outward appearance. أحسن أثاثاً You could translate it as furnishings, but it means they were, they had better material possessions. Wari'iyya means that they were, in terms of decoration and um, makeup, if you will, like appearance, fashion, they even looked much better. So, God is telling them, you know, there were, pe there were people who were, had better material possessions and were better looking than you guys. Uh, but still, their fate was the same. The, at 78, when Afra'ayta al-ladhi kafra bi-ayatina wa qala la'utina malan wa walada attala'a al-ghayb am attakhaza inda al-rahmani ahda 78, there are reports that um, what was his name? Khabab ibn al-Ard Khabab ibn al-Ard had a debt with Al-As bin Wa'il Al-As bin Wa'il is the father of Umar ibn al-As and that he went to him and said, pay your debt. And, and he said, I heard that you converted to Islam. And he said, yes. He said, well, I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to pay you back uh, unless you leave Islam. And then Al-As, then Khabbab said, well, you're going to pay for this in the hereafter. So Al-As ibn al-Wa'il makes a cheeky comment. Uh, well, you know, if, in the hereafter, I will have a lot of money and children, and so I will still be rich, and I'm still not going to pay you back. And the report that says that the reason for the revelation, or occasion for revelation for 78, is that report. Uh, I'm not doubting that the incident was Khabab and Al-As ibn Wa'il. It probably happened, but I don't think it was an occasion for revelation for verse 78. 
but just for the sake of accuracy, I thought I'd mention it. Um, when I forgot, in 64, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَمَا كَانَ رَبُّكَ نَسِيًّا Allah is not forgetful. Uh, there's something worth mentioning that the Prophet ﷺ was asked about this verse. Why why does Allah say why, why does Allah say that he's not forgetful? And in the tradition attributed to the Prophet, the Prophet ﷺ is reported to have said ما أحل الله في كتابه فهو حلال وما حرم فهو حرام وما سكت عنه فهو عافية فقبلوا من الله عافيته فإن الله لم يكن لينسى شيئا. So the prophet basically says that there are things that Allah mentions in the book that are haram and things that Allah mentions in our book that are halal and things that Allah doesn't mention. And the things that Allah doesn't mention is not because Allah is forgetful, but because Allah is merciful. So learn to accept Allah's mercy. Now, this hadith is important. The, the, the whole option, the whole premise in Islamic jurisprudence that the burden of proof is always with the person who wants to argue for a taklif and the burden is always upon the person who claims that something is haram is founded on hadith like this but um, ethically it's it's something that we need to rethink about the way we approach the Quran. Allah is not forgetful and the very idea that when Allah doesn't address certain things is afia and that we must as an ethical matter accept Allah's extended act of mercy um, is of course critical oh in verse 73 um, 73 let's look at the translation for a second um, and then we shall save those who are reverent and leave the wrongdoers therein on their knees and when are uh, no uh, and oh yeah and when our signs are recited unto them are clear proof those who disbelieve say which of the two groups is better in station or fairer in company uh, I want to mention there's another report about 73 um, it's a, the, there 
in the rhetoric going on between the early converts and the Qurayshis. Um, the early Muslims were described in these rather colorful terms. كانت فيهم قشافة وفي عيشهم خشونة وفي ثيابهم رثاثة وفي منازلهم ضيق وكانوا المشركون يرجلون شعورهم ويدهنون رؤوسهم ويلبسون أفخر ثيابهم What this is saying is that the early Muslims looked destitute. They lived a hard life. Their clothes were often old and torn. Their homes were small and tight. While those who, while the mushrikeen, the, 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 those who were not Muslim, often had elaborate hair, hairdos. They, they, would, they would make up their, you know, they didn't cut their hair and they would have nice hairdos. And then when you, when you put cream in your head, that was a sign of wealth back then, uh, greasing your, your hair. Um, is greasing your hair still in fashion? Gel. Gel? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it, it was back then. Was, and of course wore <laughs> fashionable clothes and expensive clothes. Um, and this is mentioned as ayul fariqain khayrul maqama that the kuffar would always Tell Muhammad, look at your followers. They 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 look miserable. And the, the Quran responds uh, this in seventy three and says, "Well, you're gonna find out who is actually more superior to the other." Okay. The next thing to flag. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says yeah. um, I'm gonna flag eighty-three. And I'm Tara how is this eighty-three translated? The study Quran says, unleash the Satans on the disbelievers to incite them cunningly. Muslim theologians had long discussions about the idea of unleashing Satans. Um, To sum up these discussions, remember that when that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَمَنْ يَعْشُ عَنْ ذِكْرِ الرَّحْمَانِ نُقَيِّدْ لَهُ الشَّيْطَانَ That that who ignores the remembrance of Allah 
they become accompanied by a shaitan. The theological position that I accept, and this is this, this is debated. That arsanna means that we did not hold back the shayateen. Because once you make your choice to be away from Allah, then you're fair game. But that Allah doesn't direct at you shayateen for the purpose of misguiding you. There is a hadith that, um, that I think is significant, that it's mentioned especially on this verse. When the Prophet is asked about this verse, and the Prophet's response was most interesting. Because he says, Man ala surura sarrani. That he's saying, Allah is saying this. Man ala surura sarrani. Wa man sarrani ahda. Fala nar. Inna Allah la and then in another version, that the, the Prophet says that whoever brings happiness to a believer has pleased Allah. And whoever then pleases Allah then then they have entered into a covenant with a rahman so they are not touched by fire and satans will not pursue them although this hadith has been widely reported i i've don't hear it among modern Muslims for whatever reason um, often. But the, the implications are clear. If you bring happiness to believers, you've pleased Allah. So the path to pleasing Allah is obvious. It's it's not doing good. Let me be very clear. It's not doing good in the sense that you go to the mosque and you say who has a straight line in prayer. It's not doing good in the sense of going to the mosque and saying who hasn't covered their hair properly and saying, sister, go cover your hair. It's not going to the mosque and seeing whether women are properly segregated from men. It is actually bringing happiness. So regardless of how pious you are, if you, if you bring to people sadness and misery, there is no ahd, there is no covenant. Now, remember the theme of this entire surah is rahmah. So again, hold on to this, we're going to come back to it. Then the surah returns to the theme that we saw with Maryam in thoroughly disavowing the idea 
that Ar-Rahman can have an attachment of Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahman that Allah would would Ar-Rahman would have a child and that in fact it is so absurd that it's nearly the case that entire creation will go asunder, will split apart from the absurdity of this claim. وَمَا يَنْبَغِي لِلْرَّحْمَانِ أَنْ يَتَّخِذَ وَلَدًا إِنَّ كُلُّ مَنْ فِي السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ إِلَّا آتِ الرَّحْمَانِ عَبْدًا This is 93. that none in the heavens or on the earth, but that it will come unto Rahman as Abd, as a servant. Now, notice the, the, the repeated use of the word Rahman. Then, إِنَّ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَعَمِلُوا الصَّالِحَاتِ سَيَجْعَلُوا لَهُمُ الرَّحْمَانُ وُدَّا this is 96. Surely those who believe and do good deeds, سَيَجْعَلُوا لَهُمُ الرَّحْمَنُ وُدَّا The compassionate will ordain for them wood, love. But here it's not just love but a loving relationship. So, one of the du'as that Imam Ali used to repeat very often, he would say, which is taken from Surah Maryam, قُلُوا اللَّهُمْ مَجْعَلْ لِي عِنْدَكَ عَهْدًا وَاجْعَلْ لِي عِنْدَكَ وُدَّا وَاجْعَلْ لِي فِي صُدُورِ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ مَوَدَّا Allah, make between me and you ahd, a special covenant. And between me and you, wood, love. And in the hearts of believers, مَوَدَّا a special um, tenderness. It's one. It's a beautiful du'a. قُلْ وَاللَّهُمَّ اجْعَلْ لِي عِنْدَكَ عَهْدًا وَاجْعَلْ لِي عِنْدَكَ وُدًّا وَاجْعَلْ لِي فِي صُدُورِ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ مَوَدًّا could you, could you repeat it one more time? There is a, another du'a 
um, that that also Imam Ali used to um, repeat, also taken from Surah <coughs> Maryam, and it it's an indication of of the of the of the place that Surah Maryam. Uh, but I need okay. The du'a, shall I tell you the, 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 the du'a? The, he, Imam Ali would say, Ya kaf ha, ya ayn sad. He would actually start the du'a this way. Ya kaf ha, ya ayn sad. A'udhu bika min al-wuzunub al-lati tujibu al-niqam. Wa'udhu bika min al-zunub al-lati tughayiru al-ni'am. وأعوذ بك من الذنوب التي تهتك العصم وأعوذ بك من الذنوب التي تحبس غيس الماء السماء وأعوذ بك من الذنوب التي تدير الأعداء انصرنا على من ظلمنا So he would start off with يا عين صاد and then أعوذ بك من الذنوب التي توجب النقم I seek refuge from the sins that bring down your anger. And I seek refuge from the sins that alter your blessings, that take away your blessings. And I seek refuge from sins that um, break, I would translate it as break the bones or break the 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 oppressive sins sins that that are so oppressive that in fact degrade you and degrade your very being and auzu bika min azunub allati tahwus ghaysa sama that the sins that prevent the blessings that come from the heavens or aid from the heavens. And I seek refuge from you, seek refuge from sins that bring about enemies. Give us victory over those who have been unjust to us. Um, Imam Ali was a master of dua. And so, but these are the duas that are associated, associated with him and Surat Maryam. Okay. So, now, we get to the end of Surah Maryam, and on the one hand, Allah is telling us that who believes and does good, the Rahman that the Rahman will create a loving relationship with him. And this final reminder of how many groups and tribes and people before them 
have been vanquished or have disappeared and when هل تحس منهم أحد أو تسمع لهم ركزة Do you see any of them or hear a sound from them? So you notice basic themes in Surah Maryam. The repeated theme of Rahman which culminates that Rahman could in fact emerge into a relationship of wood, love. But the basic theme of the role of silence as an educator, if you're interested, I wrote in the conference of the books many years ago something, um, a chapter called, um, um, I think it's On Silence. I think it's called On Silence. It was inspired by Surat Maryam. Um, and yet we see this constant refrain or constant reference to Rahman as we are told about the story of Yahya John the Baptist, we're told about the story of Maryam and her struggles with Jesus. We're told about the story of Ibrahim and his heartbreak with his father. We are told about, in quick reference, we're not really told the story, but we are referred in passing to the birth of Isaac, the birth of Ismail, and the birth of Jacob, and a quick reference to Idris. And there is even a story about Idris that could be quite disturbing because one of the stories is that although Idris was remarkably compassionate and loving towards his people, what they ended up doing with him is that they sculpt him. Is that when you cut out the... They, they killed him by sculpting him. So... There is hadith that might help you put it all together. إِذَا أَحَبَّ اللَّهُ عَبْدًا إِبْتَلَاهُ فَإِنْ صَبَرَ إِجْتَبَاهُ فَإِنْ رَضِيَ إِصْطَفَاهُ If Allah loves someone, ibtalah, sends afflictions upon this person. Then if this person, sabr, perseveres with these afflictions, 
Allah ishtabah, Allah chooses that person as among the select chosen close to Allah. So after perseverance, if the person's attitude to Allah's tests and afflictions is the rida, is not just acceptance, but genuine contentment with Allah's will. you become among al-mustafin al-akhyar the purified chosen of the highest status there is another narrative that might put this all together this is attributed to various successors of the tabi'in of the Prophet قالوا بالبلاء تحترق الأوصاف الرديئة وبالصبر تحصل الأخلاق الإلهية وبالرضا تحصل الصفات الحقية that it is hardship that weeds away your, your ill characteristics, your bad manners. And it is perseverance and patience that enables you to achieve divine virtues but it's ultimately your relationship of contentment with the divine that enables you to understand as-sifat al-haqqiyya means to understand the truth of divine attributes so you become in a proper proximity with the divine so look back at all the people that you were introduced to in Surat Maryam. Zachariah reaching an old age without an heir in constant principled conflict with his compatriots at the temple to have John the Baptist Yahya as a loved, beautiful son, the principles upheld because he was a good son and that's a mercy from your Lord. And the fact that he is martyred doesn't mean cruelty from your Lord. What was Zachariah's reaction to the martyrdom of John the Baptist's son was perseverance and acceptance. Mary, the prototype 
of superwoman, the ideal woman, refuses to submit to patriarchy, refuses to submit to the rules of the temple, and refuses to accept the ostracism or the degradation that his her society wishes to inflict on her. She has a miraculous child. This child is blessed. He again is a mercy unto her as his mother. And at the end, it ends in persecution. What's her reaction, perseverance, and contentment? Ibrahim, who was very attached to his family, but particularly his father, and ultimately is forced to be exiled from his father and to grow up in a rather rude awakening because he is broken from his entire tribal attachments. And to pioneer an entire movement, monotheism of Ibrahim, which will involve many struggles and many ups and downs. And then the quick references to, to Ishaq, Ishaq, without any details, but Ismail, his challenge with the tribe of Jurham, the, the, the Arab tribe out in the desert. In the case of John, Jesus, Ibrahim, and his legacy, Ismail and his legacy, and even Idris and his legacy, the mercy of your Lord is reaped generations later by people who come centuries later. So, you want to be close to you, to God, there is no alternative other than the path of belief, good deeds, patience and perseverance, and rida, accepting Allah's will. Understanding that difficult tests on this earth is often whether they are a curse or a blessing depends on how you handle them. This applies to both men and women as Surah Maryam makes abundantly clear. The role of the sacrificing woman is essential 
for Allah's mercy to unfold. In fact, I go even a step further and I say that Allah's mercy will, cannot unfold upon a people unless you have women of the prototype that Maryam presents. In other words, the heroic woman. No society can build a civilization without many Maryams in the history of that society. It's impossible. Study history. It's, it does not happen. You can afford to have many horrible fathers, but you cannot afford to have horrible mothers. You cannot. Society falls apart. And that the mercy of your Lord is the wood, the love, that you can attain. But if you don't pursue that love, you are at risk of drifting into the party of shaitan. And that's one of the painful lessons of Surah Maryam. But critically, for these Muslims to understand, and for all Muslims you wish would understand, is that the sacrifices of those that were made by those who pursued the wood, the love of the Lord, the sacrifices they made were not wasted. They were in fact acts of mercy presented to generations of people that come much later on. You cannot build a civilization unless the people who are civilization builders are interested in the future. A civilization is not built by people who only think of my children and maybe their children. Civilization is built by people who can think in terms of generations to come. When Zachariah presented his son as a sacrifice to the cause, and Maryam presented her son as a sacrifice to the cause, and Ibrahim presented his son as a sac and his sons as sacrifices to the cause. They were thinking generations ahead. And the Muslims who built the Islamic civilization needed to be exactly of that mind frame. Their women before their men. Because if the women were not capable of thinking like that, the women wouldn't migrate walking on their feet in the desert, wouldn't raise children to go fight battles against empires like the Byzantia and Persia, 
wouldn't raise children to go leave their homeland in the heart of the desert and go live far away in Syria or Tajikistan or Egypt. That frame, that way of thinking required a Maryam, required the mothers of that generation of Muslims to be Maryams. To put it simply, the challenge that Surat Maryam really presents us with is, can our big women become Maryams? And what is needed to do that? Well, alhamdulillah, Surat Maryam is done. Alhamdulillah.